Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. So I'm going to do a little visual illustration. Uh, I had to search the school to find this glass because I couldn't, didn't really want to use a plastic cup because it misses it. So how full is that glass? Half, half full or half empty? Yeah, which is it? Are you a glass half full person? Or are you a glass half-empty person? When the outcome of something could go one way or the other, do you tend to go with the negative or with the positive? Now, I'm an engineer, and to me, that's a glass that's twice the size that it needs to be. Okay, but actually, in reality, (laughs) it's bigger than it needs to be. Actually, the reality is that actually, naturally, I am a half-empty person. And, and I, I, that's just my natural character. I always tend to see the negative, what can go wrong, um, rather than what can go right in a situation. And it actually takes me a conscious effort not to be that way all the time. Uh, you know, to, to not, to be half, you know, not to be half full rather than half empty. To look on the bright side of life rather than always on the negative side. Um, last week, we saw this scripture. So there it is. And that, that's... Um, from James 5, verse 17. I've done it from a version you've probably not heard of for the evangelical heritage version, but I did it because it's the only one that had the word man. Elijah was a man just like us. Um, they all have variations. He was human like us and all different things like that. Um, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. So we've been studying up to now. We heard last week about the miraculous stuff that Elijah did on the, with the prophet of Baal, and then he prayed for it not to rain, and then he prayed for it to rain, and it rained. The literal translation of the, of the Greek behind this is, um, is I mean, Elijah was a man with similar passions and similar feelings as us, or he was of the same nature as us. And the point here that Sim did bring out last week was that he was only human, and yet he still did amazing, miraculous things. And the point there was that, uh, you know, we can do that too, because we're human. But God is a supernatural God. But I want to look at the second part there. You know, so last week we looked at Elijah was just a man, just like us. And yeah, he did a miraculous things. Now I want to look at Elijah was a man just like us. He was much more similar to us than you might think he was. You might think he did all those amazing things. But today we're going to look at how he was very human and indeed had similar feelings and passions as us. And he also got very down and depressed, which is what human beings can do. He had just had an amazing experience. He had seen the miraculous intervention of God in a standoff with the prophets of Baal. He'd utterly destroyed them. He'd seen an amazing answer to prayer in the the rain came after, you know, after the huge long drought. He ran faster than a chariot. We heard this all last week. We would think he was walking on air at that point. He was on cloud nine. But he hears after that one negative thing and he has a very human reaction. So let's look at the next slide. So I could look here. And and we'll read just the first bit. So this is immediately after that story of of him running faster than the chariot and the rain coming. So now Ahab, who was the king, told Jezebel, his wife, everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. Actually, it wasn't Elijah. It was the people who killed them, but uh, he did tell them to. Uh, So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, 
May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Now, Jezebel was the pagan wife of Ahab. And there's other scriptures show that Ahab sinned terribly against God when he took her as his wife. She was a worshipper of Baal and Ashtaroth. And if you look back in Kings, she had been killing off the Lord's prophets in the land one by one. And you can read that in 1 Kings 18.4. Possibly she was one of the most evil women in the Bible. So Elijah had a justification <laughs> to be afraid of her. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. So one minute, he's on top of the world. And next minute, he's running scared, hiding under a bush and wanting to die. Now, as I said, from what she'd done already, there's no doubt that Jezebel's threat was real. But why did it cause, after what he'd seen God do just previously, why did it cause this extreme reaction in Elijah? Okay, uh, just, just pray, Lord. I just pray now for this word that I bring to you, uh, bring to the church this morning, Lord, that you will speak to people, that they would realize that, that Elijah, although he was an amazing prophet of God, was human and had the same issues as we do, Lord. And I just pray for those of us who've had those issues or have those issues that you'd really touch us this morning and help us see the truth that you bring to bear on this, on this topic, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So next slide, please. Keep looking back. What goes up? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you finished it. Oh, I've, I've, I've jumped too many of now, there are many classic causes of depression, uh, and some of them you see in Elijah's actions. He was probably emotionally and physically exhausted from what he'd been through. He left, as you see, read in that little passage we read, he left his servant behind, so he cut himself off from all other human uh, help. He was focusing on the negative, and he seemed to have completely forgotten the positive of the previous days. He was definitely half full, uh, half empty, sorry. He'd forgotten the power of God he'd witnessed there. But he's also interesting that he just had what we might call a mountaintop experience. And it's quite interesting that often when we can have these amazing experiences, we can often have a real downer afterwards. Um, sometimes it's clearly the enemy. I don't know, people who've been baptized frequently come under serious attack after being baptized. They've made that step for God and they had an amazing experience. And then everything goes wrong the following week. Um, the fact is, and this is just natural, when you're on the top of the mountain... The only natural way you can really go after that is down. So it's not surprising that sometimes we have a bit of down after a massive high. But there is a difference between going down a bit and going so low you want to die. That's interesting, those of us who were in the church in January 2017, Dwayne White gave us a message. It was at the start of our, what we call our year of adventure. And it was about going over the top and he put up a picture of a mountain I don't know, remember, it wasn't Everest or something, it may have been Everest, something like that. And my natural glass half-empty thought was, and he said, where are we going to go when we reach the top of the mountain? And my natural thought was, well, we're going to go down the other side, aren't we? Um, that was just me. Now, Dwayne did go on to explain that what he meant is when you get to the top of a mountain, this is true in most mountain ranges, unless you're climbing Everest, um, when you get there, you see, actually, there's another peak even higher. 
And, and he talked about, when you get to the top, you can see there's more. And he's talked about our, yeah, our ceiling becoming our floor. That's the point he made. But there is another meaning of going over the top. And that was our theme. I think that was the theme of our conference. I can't remember. No, or, or the, or certainly the theme of that talk he gave that may be very relevant here. It was also used in World War I and maybe other world wars in the terms of trench warfare. When the soldiers climbed out of the trench, they were go it was called going over the top. They were going to advance against the enemy straight into enemy gunfire, wasn't it? I mean, they were, they were safe in the trench to some extent. Once they put their heads above the trench, they were really open to the enemy gunfire. And if we do something great for God or God does something amazing for us, we're getting out of the trench. And we're starting to take ground from the enemy. And he will not like that one bit. And it's not surprising that he sometimes directs our, his fire against us while we're still, you know, still fresh in that. Um, we're still, um, especially happens to new believers when they're baptized, when they've been baptized. And that's exactly what happened to Elijah when he confronted the prophets Baal. Baal. These prophets were her prophets. That's why she was so upset that he had them all killed. Uh, he was going directly into battle with her. And it's not surprising she now directed her fire against him. Okay, next slide, please. Now, I spoke... I want to talk about depression a bit today. And I spoke on this at some length, actually, last October, uh, when we were talking, going through the armour of God. And I talked about the helm of hope of salvation. It's protection for our mind. And the mind... Our mind is the main area of attack of the enemy. There's no doubt about that. And it's under incredible assault today. Um, we find different statistics all over the internet about the prevalence and trends of mental health issues. Uh, but there's no real doubt in anyone's mind that it is on the increase among all ages. I mean, especially young people in the most recent years. And even as young as primary school age. We talk about primary school age children getting depressed. Uh, just one statistic I'll quote, and there are loads of them, from The Guardian. I read this in June last year, 2017. Uh, in 2016, there were 64 million antidepressants described. Now, that's one for everyone in, the, in Britain. Now, I'm sure it wasn't everyone in Britain, but uh, 64 million in that year. And that's over 100% increase on the 10 years previously. In 2006, there was 31 million prescribed. So that's a 100% increase over 10 years in the amount of antidepressants being Described. Now, one thing is mental health is people are more aware of it. So there is that aspect that people are now coming out and they're seeking help where before they didn't. But there is no doubt it's an increasing issue. And Christians, would you believe, are certainly not immune, both old and young. Uh, the son of Rick Warren, he wrote um, uh, a well-known American uh, pastor and church leader. He wrote The 40 Days of Purpose. His son committed 2000, uh, suicide in 2013. Um, and we may know or even uh, we know of or even be Christian parents whose children have tried the same thing. But it's not just young people. It's also true among older Christians. You might think we would be more robust being older and somewhat wiser, but it's not so. And I know that because it happened to me. So in 2010, between 2010 and 2012, I suffered over two years of clinical depression. Um, it was triggered uh, by being made redundant from a job that I'd held for 26 years. But I'd also been a Christian for 26 years, so I really ought to, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you might naturally think it wouldn't have happened to me. But actually, I know now, as I look back on it, that it, the depression or that started long before it finally went really bad and got clinical. Um, and I just didn't recognize what was going on. I just didn't recognize. It was the most horrendous time for me 
but even more so for my family, especially Judith, uh, who stuck through me, uh, you know, by the grace of God, stuck through uh, with me through it. And I'm just that so thankful to God for that. But my experience when I was in there, and I've said a little bit about that, this at other times, my real experience of depression when I was right in that really bad state was a complete loss of hope, complete and utter hopelessness. No hope for the present, no hope for the future. A permanent state of hopelessness, and, that, and that's what I was experiencing. And um, now, God showed me that when I, I'll tell you a little bit about it, I, I, I obviously came out of it at some point, but um, God showed me a little bit. The fact is, if we don't have God, and this is what I believe, if we don't know the truth and the, the, the hope that we have in God, depression is actually the natural state of man. I mean, I think most of the world is going through life with a false sense of security. You know, they're not really aware of what's going on and how hopeless their situation is without God. Um, it's good, because otherwise the whole, you know, the whole country would be depressed. But that is the natural state of man without God. But as I say, it also affects Christians who you'd think, you know, why would we experience it? We do believe in a loving God. We do know that our hope comes from the Lord. One reason that can hit believers particularly hard is it's seen as unspiritual. You shouldn't be feeling this. We shouldn't be feeling this way. But as we saw, and we see for that story of Elijah, we're in good company. You know, many characters in the Bible went through this. Not only Elijah, Job, uh, and this, he went through it, the one who God said was the most righteous in all the earth. And despite this, awful things happened to him. He, and he experienced terrible anxiety, depression, and fear, till at one point he actually said this, Terrors overwhelm me. My dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like a cloud, and now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. That was Job. Moses, the great leader of Israel, of God, uh, of Israel, who God spoke to face to face, he got completely fed up and depressed with his situation. And he said this in Numbers 11, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do let me, do not, let me face my own ruin. David, the great king of Israel, who God said was a man after his own heart, he experienced anguish, loneliness, fear of the enemy, and guilt over sin. And the Psalms are full of the reality of David's, of David's feelings. But just read this one verse from Psalm 42. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Um, Jonah, the one who disobeyed God and was swallowed by a huge fish, he said, Lord, take my life and, you know, it's for better me to die than live. Jeremiah and even Paul, the great apostle in the New Testament, possibly experienced despair and, 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 and a bit of depression. There are many varied reasons for becoming anxious and depressed. Now, some are our fault. We allowed it to happen. That was the case. That's one of the reasons I felt so bad. I knew I'd allowed myself into this by certain choices I'd made over many years, bad choices, but most people, I would say a lot more people, it's no blame on them whatsoever. It happens because of possibly a physical or hormonal imbalance like postnatal depression or some situation has happened, a death of a loved one or something like that, that you know, was not their fault whatsoever. So bereavement, sickness, redundancy, things that you have no control of. Well, I need to drink some of that water so it'll be a, less, a bit less full. <laughs> but there is a difference, and we must recognize, between feeling a bit down and clinical depression. Because once you are in serious depression, 
once it's got that bad, and I don't think it gets that bad instantly. As I said, in my case, it was actually building up for years, and then there was a trigger, which was losing my job, that suddenly went bad very quickly. But once you're in there, the symptoms are very similar. It's very interesting. You can't get pleasure from anything. Things that used to bring you joy don't bring you joy. You can't get out of bed. You just want to stay there all the time. You feel tired all the time. You're unable to do things that you used to find easy. You know it's mental, but it actually you are physically feel physically unable to do those things. You know it's in your head, and you know you ought to be able to do that. It just makes you feel worse because you just physically can't do them. The other thing about depression, and this is actually getting better because of people's awareness today, it's not well understood by other people, particularly other Christians. You're being told, <coughs> it's all in your mind. Snap out of it. That's not very helpful or understanding if someone's in clinical depression. And this is a danger. Although once you're there, the symptoms are very similar. A lot of people who've gone through depression, you share this, oh yeah, I feel like that. And we can tend to think that what works for because of that, what works for one works for all. But, but the way they went in can be very different. As I said, the, the thing that took you there can be very different. And the way out practically may be very different and take different time periods for everyone. It can certainly be helped by medication and other therapies and, of course, by prayer. But I believe there's only one lasting solution, which is true for me, and I believe true for everyone, is having or regaining that real and genuine sense of hope. Okay, next slide. False hopes. So I want to, it's interesting, what I want to felt today was a little bit more, look a little bit more about why depression may be so prevalent. Why is it among certain people groups, young people, um, particularly millennials um, and, and middle-aged Christians, would you believe, which, which I fitted in the ca that category. It's interesting in young people, they call them millennials. These are basically born between about 1981 and 1996. So I have four children in that, pretty much in that age racket, Judith and I do. Um, if you, the internet's full of funny things about millennials, but there was one characteristic that they were brought up being told they were special. They could have the world, you know. They didn't have to, you know, this is the, when you ran in school sports, everyone got a prize. It didn't matter about winning, you know. It, just taking part was what was important. Everyone wins. They, they were falsely taught by teachers and maybe even by us, our parents, that they could have the world with little effort, you know. You know, the world is their oyster. And there is, the internet is full of stuff about when they get into the workplace, they suddenly have a real dose of reality. Suddenly they find they have to work hard and things don't just come easy and they might be in a work environment they don't enjoy. And, and this is the reality that their previous generation knew from experience uh, and it really hits them very, very hard. Um, and, and that is, a one, I think, a significant cause of them getting depressed because things that they were told were false hopes. They weren't actually true. And, and, uh, and then they believed it. And then when the reality hits them, it takes them down. Now, it also happens in middle-aged people quite a lot. We all know about the mid-life crisis that, that middle-aged men particularly are supposed to go to and they go out and buy a sports car or whatever. Um, uh, but it's also true in the church. And I don't know if you saw... Paul Ibbott's blog from a few weeks ago where he talked about the mid-faith crisis. And this is this thing where Christians, people who may be in Christians quite some time, and in fact, was it the first song we sung? There must be more than this. You know, so they get halfway through uh, their Christian life and think, you know, this isn't why I was told. This isn't right. Something's not right. There must be more than this. Uh, and I actually think there may be a similar cause to why they feel that way as there was with the millennials. 
Because in charismatic churches, especially and evangelical churches, we've been taught we're we history makers. You know, we will change the world. We wrote songs about it. Graham Kendrick and Delirious, they wrote and sang songs. We're going to be history makers. We're going to change the world. And you know, it's easy to believe that when you're in a group with thousands of others in a massive concert. But it's not so easy when the rubber hits the road on Monday morning. Um, we can get a good way through our Christian life and discover that history hasn't changed very much. In fact, things seem to be getting worse. And it's certainly not changed through us anyway. And as always, only a few people get to change things on a very large scale that's visible to all. I found a fascinating blog a couple of years ago um, by a lady called Anya Briggs, which wrote on a... Uh, wrote a blog titled, Don't Judge Me, But I'm Not a History Maker. And she was the one who went on about these, these songs we used to sing. Um, uh, the subtitle was, I was going to do something big for God, then life happened. So I can give you the link to the whole blog, but here's the, la- the concluding sentences on the next slide. Please, yeah. The real, so it's not negative, all this blog. It's just saying the real history makers are those who live faithfully in the midst of struggle and in the midst of munda- mundanity. They are those who don't dodge the empty spaces like they're an inconvenience, striving to be someone else, but who live with the boundaries placed on them because that's real life and that's what will speak to people. I still want to be a history maker, but I've discovered that in God's economy, this means that I shrink so that he is made bigger. It means that I follow him, even if the path I'm on does not make sense to me. The Bible says in Proverbs 13:12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And when our sense of hope and purpose is based on a false and unrealistic hope, then no wonder we get disappointed and depressed when it doesn't turn out the way we thought it would. Here's another one. We've also also been told we are special to God, and he has an amazing plan for our lives. Now, this may be true, but we are not told, generally, that this plan might involve us Working in a job we don't enjoy, day in, day out. It might involve us not doing anything particular spectacular. It might involve us being faithful in a difficult marriage. It might even involve sickness, pain and suffering of us or our loved ones. This is God's amazing plan. And I, apologies to say, but we even fed into this a little bit with our year of adventure last year. People tended, when asked what's the most adventurous thing you've done, we share their amazing holidays or experiences. But that is not really what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is about living for God every day and in every circumstance. That is the challenge. That is the adventure. Not necessarily changing the world, but touching everyday lives of the people around us. And even this statement that we are special to God, which is true, is a bit misleading. It is not just us, me, that is special, but everyone. Everyone is special to God. The danger is leading people into the impression that they're somehow more special than other people and God's going to give them special treatment. That God cares more about them than others. It's just not true. Now, something I've heard said many times, and maybe you've even said it yourself, so don't feel guilty, but it always grates me a bit when I hear it. It says that you are so special to God that if you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have still died for you. Now, that idea actually may have come originally from Augustine, one of the church fathers, and it's also implied by a statement in one of C.S. Lewis's books, C.S. Lewis I love, um, but it's not really biblical. In fact, it's a bit of a meaningless statement because it never happened and it never could have happened. You aren't the only person in the world, and therefore it doesn't really prove anything. And it, to me, it also seems to belittle a little bit the immense sacrifice that Jesus actually made. 
the enormity of what it was like for one individual to have the most horrendous sins of every person in history, including you, on him. And Jesus did not die for you or for me only. He died for the sins of the whole world. More significantly, do we want to think of Jesus dying for our sins alone? Do we really want to be solely responsible for putting him on the cross? Is there something not something slightly encouraging that we are not the only ones to blame? If our hope is based on God treating us in a special way compared to others, it is based on us personally being a world changer, then we may well get sorely disappointed, quite possibly even depressed. Now we, let's talk about, that's false hope, let's talk about real hope. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so false hopes may well put us into depression. They certainly won't help us get out of it. What we need is real hope. Now real hope is not British hope, e.g. I hope it won't rain tomorrow, I hope England win the World Cup. Actually, I put those statements in, actually first, it's quite possible at the moment, and even the second maybe, but biblical hope is not I hope this happens with no real you know, certainty it will. Biblical hope is sure and certain. It's based on the promises and the unchangeable truths of God. Now this is amazing, Judith and I did not collude, but she read the next verse out, uh, if we have the next slide please. Yeah, Romans 15, 13. She read it out from the voice version, uh, which had the word infuse in. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. That's it. Hope because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to do with trust, joy and peace and the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, in Hebrews 6, 18, it says, So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It's something we can rely on, something we can depend on to hold us steady. I've said this before more than once. I think that faith... Faith in something looks backwards. It's based on what we've experienced of God in the past and what is written in his world, word, the Bible. That's what our faith is based on. And it also builds, as Sim talked about last week, it builds from small to large. Our faith, we don't start with a massive faith of Elijah. We start small and we're faithful in the little things and God is able to be faithful in the big things. Um, but it builds. But hope, however, hope is looking forward. And hope is based but both these facts, faith and hope, are based on the truth of the word of God. Because the word of God never changes, and God never changes. And the promises he made and he fulfilled in the past are still valid for us today. Um, it's based on the truth of the word of God. It's based on our experience and the reality of him in our lives. Past experience, God answered that prayer before. He brought me out of that situation. Builds our faith so that we can trust him in this later situation now. And it gives us a sure hope that we can trust his promises about the future. Now, I'm currently, uh, have been reading through the book of Hebrews, and chapter 11 of Hebrews is quite well known. It's known the Great Hall of Faith. And it goes through a whole list of people in the Bible and their amazing faith. It talks the faith about, about the faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And it says in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, all these people were still living by faith when they died. 
they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. It then goes on to talk about the faith of Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and many others. And it ends with this passage. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they would be made perfect. They never saw what the ultimate fulfillment, what they had faith for, had been promised in their own lifetimes. Yet they still had faith because they were looking for something better. They were looking for the eternal kingdom. He's talking about us. Paul was talking, uh, the writer of Hebrews, maybe not Paul, but he, he was talking about you know, the church age, Jesus dying on the cross and all that. That was all to come after those Old Testament characters we heard about. They died and they didn't see everything they were promised, but they still had faith. Um, can we also read in Hebrews 6? Um, if you, Next slide, please. That's the one, yeah. So Hebrews 6, verse 11 to 15 says this. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the examples of those, and he was talking about those Old Testament believers, who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. It's not just about faith. And he went on to say, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now, in this case, he was talking about his son. But Abraham only partly received what he was promised in his lifetime. He had to wait 10 years from when that promise was given until his son Isaac was born. So he waited patiently for 10 years, and then his son Isaac was born. But he never saw the descendants beyond number, the multiplication of his descendants, e.g. the one million Israelites plus that left Egypt under Moses, many generations later, or the greater numbers that lived in the land of Israel after that. So last week we talked about the faith of Elijah. And Sim also mentioned that faith is not enough on its own. And we can see that from this scripture, that we need great patience as well as faith and endurance and perseverance. Okay, next uh, slide, yeah. This is a, a lovely verse, which I'm quoting from the New King James because I just love the way it phrases. Now, hope does not disappoint. If we have true hope, we are not disappointed because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If we can really get hold of the true biblical hope that is available to us through the love of God, we will not be disappointed or depressed. Now, I, the thing that brought me out of depression, when I, I came out when I got my hope back. Now, I did very little about that. I did very little to help myself at all. I was terrible. I was just feeling sorry for myself all the time. God did it all. He literally reached in and grabbed me by the strap of the neck, uh, actually in a very short space of time over one weekend in July 2012. Um, and he showed me his love, which I'd never really fully understood before. I knew in my mind about God's love, but I just had a real experience of his love for me. And also, and also his complete and utter forgiveness of everything I'd done wrong, including all things that led me to get depressed in the first place, which a lot of it was my own fault. Uh, I, when I really understood that and got hold of that, it, it transformed me. My clinical depression, 
even my doctor was made, it did vanish almost overnight, within a, within a day. Um, now, that doesn't mean I don't get down sometimes. In fact, very often, I, I still get back, you know, wake up feeling down, but I do recognise what it is now, and it no longer has any power over me, nothing, nothing lasting. That's very interesting. There are some very practical ways out of depression, and we can get some of those from the story of Elijah. We're not going to read all the scriptures, but if you just go on, and maybe you can study this in your connect groups. I can't remember if I put it in the notes, but you can read on in 1 Kings 19, 5 to 8, that he rests, and God, an angel tells him you know, to eat and drink. He does very practical things. He has rest. He eats and drinks properly. This is practical advice for people who are depressed. Um, the other thing... As the lies that he believed were replaced with God's truth. He thought he was the only one left. But you read on later in 1 Kings that God tells him, uh, and he thought all the Israelites had rejected God, and the fact isn't true. God tells him there were still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he was not the only one, and there were people that he still had to serve and, and be a prophet to. And the final thing is, is, is listen to God and what he tells you to do. Elijah listens to God, to the spills. There's a whole story about the still small voice of God who tells him to appoint Elisha, ultimately, to Elisha as his successor. And all those other biblical characters that I mentioned, Moses, God also helped and restored them, those who got depressed. Mo Moses, if you read in Numbers, uh, God brought others to share the burden that he had for the Israelites. He was getting too much for him. And David, in Psalm 40, verse 2, says, He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. And Job in 42, uh, verse 10 and 12, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of, the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. There is a way out. In God, with God, there is always a way out. Next slide, please. <clears throat> now, as we saw with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, mountaintop experiences are great. But we cannot remain there. We always have to come down again. And we are not meant to try and just live from one mountaintop experience to another. Let's go over to Toronto. Let's go over to Pensacola. Let's go to New Wine. Let's go to David's Tent. Whatever it is, God is not just over there. God is here right now. And if we cannot live for God and experience him every day where we are, then we are missing something that no amount of spiritual experience chasing will compensate for. There is nothing wrong with going to those places, don't let, get me wrong, in it, going to experience God in a new way or a new environment, but looking for some sort of constant spiritual fix is not healthy. There's a story in the New Testament that Jesus, of Jesus when he took three of his closest disciples up on top of a mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. It's in Matthew and Mark, the same story. And there he allowed those three disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, I think, there he allowed them to witness something of his divine majesty and power. They saw him transfigured, his face shining like the sun and his clothes as white as light. And they also saw him talking to Moses and Elijah and they heard God speaking directly to him saying, this is my son who, who I love. Um, and Peter, Peter was blown away with this experience and he wanted to stay there. And he said, let's build some shelters for Moses and Elijah. Let's stay up here on this mountaintop. But the glory passed and Jesus took them back on the mountain. They couldn't stay there. We are not designed to live on the mountaintop. We are designed to live in the valley and to bring Jesus, because that's where everyone else is, right? And we're there to bring Jesus to the everyday people who live there. And that is a very, very practical thing. I, I think of my mum, my who's 83, I think. 
She doesn't go to a charismatic church. In fact, she was moaning about the worship in the church the other day. But she just does that. She, people that come across her past, she just helps them. And she's helping a depressed lady. She's helping this lady over her. She's 83. She can ha- can't walk very well. You know, she can't drive. But she helps people. These are the everyday people, brings across her path. And she is living in the valley, but she's helping the people who are there. The lovely Psalm 23, we all know this psalm, uh, has uh, these verses at verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, or some versions have the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, staff, they comfort me. Now, this is often read at funerals, but it's not really talking about death. It's rather walking through, about talking, walking through one of these life's dark valleys. It may indeed be the death of a loved one, but it might, might not just be that. It tells us that God is with us, even there. And one of the last things Jesus is recorded as saying before, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew is this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We will have up times and we will have down times. There's no doubt to that. But as we walk through the down times with Jesus, we need to recognize the emotions of fear and anxiety and depression are at the end just feelings. They are very real feelings. If we let them get too bad, you can become clinically depressed, as I said. They are very real, no doubt, but they do not represent the reality of the truth and hope that we have in God at all. I'm going to give you a quote. I should have hidden who it's by. You'll say, who do you think that quote is by? Fear, I love this quote, if fear is not real, the only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is near insanity. Do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. So not some famous uh, you know, leader, but Will Smith in a, in a science fiction film called After Earth. He was actually talking to a young guy who was played by his son in that film. Fear is not real. It's a choice. Anxiety, it's not real. It's a choice what we do with that. And it's true of our emotions. It's even true of depressive thoughts. It's often based on imagined fears or realities. And it is a choice whether we give in to those feelings and let them drive our lives, or we recognize them for what they are and get on with our lives despite them. Over time, they will pass. And this is so much easier to do when we really get hold of the true reality of God and how much he cares for us. How we can trust him absolutely to be with there with us, be there with us, whatever happens. Nearly finished. Hey? So the way out of depression for Christians, and especially the way to prevent yourself getting into depression, is essentially the same. To get hold of that truth of how much God loves you and that he is always with you, whatever you are going through. Um, Next slide. We need to get hold of this amazing uh, truth in this verse. Next slide, please. Yes. Romans 8.28, very well-known verse. And we know that in all things, even the depression, even the down things, even the dark things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him have been called according to his purpose. That is the truth of God. There are also some very practical things uh, that help us get things into perspective. There's something that I've learned. It really helps me, especially when I wake up. And it often happens in the morning. I just wake up feeling down. There's no explanation for it. What is it? Why do I feel like this? Is I listen to worship songs. I can't really sing. If I could play a guitar, maybe I would do that. But I listen to worship songs. I really pay attention to the words. I dwell on them. We so often sing them, and we don't really focus on what those words are saying. I dwell on them and the truths they contain. 
And also, I've, uh, through doing this, I discovered there's a difference between some of the songs we sing. There are songs we sing that tell the truth about God and are therefore true however we feel. And I think you should especially listen to those ones. You know, how great is our God? You know, especially listen to those ones um, if you're feeling down. It doesn't matter how you feel, they're always true because you're singing about God and his realities. There's others that are more about our response. Um, well, yeah, sorry. The others are more about our response to God and how we love him and what we're going to do about it. Now, Jesus said in John 4.24 that we're called to worship in spirit and in truth. So I call those first songs truth songs, and the other ones I call spirit songs. They're harder to sing and believe when you're not feeling so good. Once you've listened to some truth songs, though, perhaps you can move on to these. We sung one this morning. Set a fire in my soul, I want more of you, Lord. There's no place I'd rather be. I mean, if you're feeling down... This is probably the last place you want to be. You know, it, they're, they're not true if you're not feeling that way. But it's important to get the truth of God and sometimes sing those truths. I'm sorry, I'm not criticizing Hannah for choosing that song. It's an amazing song. But you have to sing that in faith, really. <laughs> it's not necessarily how you feel. When I listen to some of those songs, it's interesting. I went through my, I've got a playlist of about 230 favorite songs that I like. And I separated them in those two times. It's interesting, about 70 of them came out as truth songs. Some were a real mixture. And about 160 came out as spirit songs. We sing very, very many more songs about how we feel and what, you know, what our response to God is than we do about his truth. I wonder if we've got that wrong, um, the wrong, wrong proportion there. It sometimes brings me to tears, and I, I, it really does in the morning. Just listen to those songs and get a real touch of the Holy Spirit. And my depression goes, my down feeling goes very often, not always, but 95% of the time, by being reminded of and getting hold of the truth of God. Lastly, he said, next slide, we were made to thrive. So finally, I want to come back to the point that we designed to live in the valley and not on the mountaintop. I am definitely not saying that as Christians we should just settle for a humdrum everyday existence. Far from it. And, and uh, so that song, I know we, we, I didn't quote all the words, and there must be more than this, is saying, you know, it's, it's an encouragement to us. You know, it's not meant to be humdrum. Um, God wants us to live for him every day, to be his hands and his feet to the people around us, to see him work in the ordinary situations that cross our path. That is our ongoing daily adventure and what we should be excited for. We can live in that spiritual high of seeing God's Holy Spirit at work in us and in the people we live with and work with and meet every day. That is God's intention for us, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit every day. And I found this summed up in a powerful track. Uh, I don't think we've got time. I've got a video, but it's five minutes long. I think we haven't probably got time to listen to it. It's a song by Casting Crowns called Thrive. The album's called Thrive. If you just, uh, no, no, don't switch to the last slide yet. I'll read just the first, uh, some particular bits from the lines from the song. It says, here in this worn and weary land where many a dream has died, like a tree planted by the water, we will never run dry. So living water flowing through, God, we thirst for more of you. Fill our hearts and flood our souls with one desire, just to know you and Make you known. We lift your name on high. Shine like the sun. Make darkness run and hide. We know we were made for so much more than ordinary lives. It's time for us to more than just survive. We were made to thrive. Can we have the final slide now? Then? And it's interesting, isn't it? The picture, that's the album art. That is our theme this year, isn't it? 
rooted. It's the roots of a tree, and it's a massive growing tree. Um, we were made for so much more than ordinary lives. It's time for us to more than just survive. We were made to thrive. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.